Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of the first of Isaiah's so-called servant songs. In Isaiah chapter 42, uh, one that speaks, as we've seen so wonderfully and fully, about our Lord Jesus Christ coming as the servant of the Lord, as uh, the hope of all the earth, as a light to the Gentiles, as a covenant to the peoples, restoring God's own uh, nation that had stumbled and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Um, we are down just a little lower than what we began in verse 5 today. And uh, I'd like to read to you, starting in verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 8, as the Lord asserts His great power in making the heavens and the earth to assure His struggling people that He will surely fulfill every word that He has written. He has written here. Let's uh, read together from Isaiah chapter 42. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give you, excuse me, keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as you are the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, as we confess So it is that we would regain that confidence which all your people at all seasons ought to have in you, that the one who has done such magnificent things in the earth, who still gives breath to your creatures in your kindness, may you show that kindness to us in instructing us from your word, reorienting us to the one who made all these things, that we might be true worshipers, not of the creature, but of the Creator. Amen. David Brainerd began his missionary work among the New Jersey uh, Indians, uh, the Delaware Indians, I guess I should say, in New Jersey in 1745, and it was an amazing time. Men and women who had lived their lives in service to their idols at the beck and call of imagined 
wicked gods began coming into the light, and those were amazing days as wonderful stories of conversion were recorded in Brainerd's journal. Uh, just as one example, there was a man who had some years before um, grown weary of his wife and following the long-standing tradition of his people had gotten rid of her for another woman. It had never bothered him before, but as soon as he came to the Lord, he found that it was weighing heavily upon his conscience, and he came to Brainerd for advice. And the preacher did some digging and learned that his wife had committed no sin against her husband and that she, for her part, desired to return to him. And Brainerd advised this Indian friend, now brother, to receive his wife back and live with her in love and peace. This he gladly and publicly did, promising before witnesses to love his wife and to treat her kindly the rest of their lives. Well, Brainerd had not been preaching on marriage or anything of the sort, but because the people learned who God is, the God that had made them, the God that will by no means clear the guilty, but who rather had loved them and sent his son to reconcile them to himself, because they knew God, they found in countless ways their lives were being transformed. Because with the knowledge of God comes a new knowledge, a knowledge of ourselves, a knowledge of the world, a knowledge of nature and the meaning of human life, of our purpose and our destiny and what a good life actually is. And this is why Jesus said in that wonderful prayer in the Gospel of John, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Eternal life is not just a life that never ends in the future. It is a life that begins now, a life that is, life that is wonderful and strong and purposeful and joyful and that has come from knowing the living God. And that is why we have verse 5 before us today in the midst of a prophecy about the future as the prophet pauses here as the Lord reminds us of the kind of God he is. You see, to remind you, in Isaiah's day, it was very difficult to be part of the people of God. It's always difficult when you are devoted to what is apparently a completely lost and hopeless cause, as we've learned during the BT football seasons under Fuentes, right? Okay. Um, but even more, far, far more than this. How much more worse for them? How small in that day was believing Israel and getting smaller? And it seemed that the law had been given in vain to the people, that is, because kings and prophets had been raised up for no purpose, apparently. The chosen people were given over to iniquity and idolatry, and all the other nations across them brooded the gross darkness and shadow of death that Isaiah goes on to speak about. Idolatry and all the abominations that came with it prevailed across the whole world. And how could anyone at such a time, when things were getting worse, hope that the earth should ever be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? It was hard to believe in such a day. It was to these dispirited people who were soon to see worse things yet to come that these words were first written. For chief among the predictions of this prophecy was the coming of a Messiah. 
an anointed one with the Spirit who would restore Israel and become a light to the Gentiles. And as we've seen, this one would be both gracious and great, both tender and triumphant. This servant of Jehovah would bear a new covenant that would be the hope of all the earth. Well, as I say, how hard it must have been to believe. And why, we might wonder, are we to believe such wonderful beautiful words. Beautiful indeed, but why is the voice of God better than all the other voices of despair that we hear all day? And we could ask the same question right now. Why shouldn't we give ear to the news anchors, the influencers, the talk radio hosts, the scholars, the the people throughout the, the world whose voice continues to be elevated above the voice of God? Such promises as these sound too good to believe then as now. And therefore, in order to pause and to give assurance that God would surely fulfill what he has spoken, he introduces the promises to come in the words that we'll be considering today in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, and stretch them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. In other words, what you are hearing comes from the one who made this world and still rules and sustains it. And that will be our study today, why that is so important. Just one verse. Now, I will say, even though it's just one verse, There are a great many other verses just like this, especially in the parts of Isaiah where the Lord is making such promises and urging comfort. Many more, even in Isaiah, uh, uh, two chapters back in chapter 40. Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, and his understanding is unsearchable? He goes on to give comfort to his people and to make them promises. Or two chapters later in chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, without your help, in other words. Well, in in these and many other passages, even in Isaiah, we're reminded, God says, I alone am God, the maker of heaven and earth. And I'm the furthest thing from those imaginary idols in the ancient world that people call gods. He is the one who made it. He is the one who rules over it. And therefore, the point is, this authority, this sovereignty, this omnipresence and omnipotence and wisdom and glory and beauty make him worthy to be heard and trusted. Get it? Uh... I have to stress this a little bit because it's, it's, it's easy to uh, forget in a day in which discussions about creation tend to revolve around apologetic issues and scientific debate and so forth that this doctrine in the Bible has a very important purpose that is neglected in those debates. A doctrine assuring us of God's righteous rule in history and the confidence and joy that we must therefore have in him. So let's begin by just me giving you a couple other examples, shall we? Uh, Nearly every worship service in a 
Dutch Reformed Church begins with one sentence from the Bible, from Psalm 124. Anybody happen to know which one? Bold enough to say? Our, should I give it in a Dutch accent or just an American accent here? <laughs> our, help is, uh, our, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do you see the connection? That this one is our help. Or in Psalm 121, the pilgrim worshiper lifts his eyes to the hills. He, go, he goes on a journey where he's liable to find danger. And from whence comes my help, he asked. You know the answer. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What's the connection? Well, bad things can happen on such a journey in such hills. But my help is from the one who made heaven and earth. You see, Psalm 146, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps steadfast love forever. Same thing. Compare the opposite conclusion of Psalm 96, that all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and so forth. And I could go to many, many more psalms, but I would like to give you just a couple verses from elsewhere. The memorable prayer, for instance, of Hezekiah, when Jerusalem was surrounded by the superpower of that day, Assyria. Uh, he, he makes a wonderful prayer. I quoted part of it in our prayer earlier. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they've destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God and you alone. Okay, so because Hezekiah knew that God was the mighty maker of heaven and earth, as opposed to all those worthless idols, he therefore knew that he was reigning and ruling in righteousness and was far more powerful than this superpower Assyria, right? And could hear and help his people in their steadfast love. Compare Jeremiah's prayer during the siege of Babylon. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. The great, the mighty God, whose name is Jehovah of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty in work. Your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it. All right, he also knows that this great and mighty God who has made everything is able to judge the world in righteousness that he made. And if you'll allow me, just one more. The church in Acts chapter 4 faces its uh, first great challenge of persecution as the apostles, you remember, are threatened by the great Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel, the people who put Jesus to death, or I should say handed them over, handed him over for death. So Acts 4.24, 
when the church heard that, that they had been so threatened, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Now, what are you going to pray when the people have been threatened? Well, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and so forth. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. O oh God, we remember who you are, and therefore we desire boldness to be able to speak who you are to them. <laughs> okay, so our confidence in God in dark days is to be refreshed from time to time by remembering, or perhaps even better, by observing, that our God is the one who made all this and sustains it all. Every time we go out and look at the stars, we are to take confidence. In fact, Isaiah 40 makes this very point. Lift your eyes and look to the heaven. Who created all these, he asks. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And the next verse gives the proper conclusion then. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. <laughs> Have you not known? Have you not heard? Okay, you go out and look. Rather than whining and complaining that I'm neglecting your cause. And you remember the God that you have. We need to open our eyes again to the power, wonder, beauty on display all around us by the one who makes and sustains such a great world. Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it this way so poetically in Aurora Lee, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. Isn't that great? Um, Charles Darwin had uh, perhaps some medical condition or at least some mental condition. I can't remember uh, what it was speculated to be right now, but later in life, um, nothing had any flavor or taste or wonder um, for him. It was a very dark later days, very gray world around him. Uh, Everything had lost its wonder and charm. may, as I say, have actually some medical cause. I, I can't say for sure, but that is the effect that his doctrine has on its followers in so many ways as we forget that everything we see around us testifies to the glories of our God in heaven. Earth's crammed with heaven. Earth is crowned with, crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, if we will only see and take off our shoes. And so you see in the Bible, what is actually at stake in the doctrine of creation is the Lord's righteous rule in history. And the confidence and joy that we are to place in him, especially in dark times. For it's hard for us to believe that a God that rules the world, the, the God could rule the world that he did not make, 
or control something that wasn't even his. It's hard for us to believe that he is bringing about good purposes or that he's able to help more than drying our tears if he doesn't have the whole world in his hands. The wind and the rain and the little bitty babies and everything in between, you see. It's precisely for that reason that the world's cultural rulers seem so determined to deny the most obvious fact all around us that a great God and a fierce artist made all those things around us. Fallen men do not want there to be such a God creating the world precisely because such a God would inevitably be ruling it and judging it. In fact, as the passage says, giving them their next breath. The sexual revolution, for one example among many, gains its authority almost entirely by substituting for God's creation an impersonal story where we are not made in any certain way to live in any certain way, but we are free to make or remake ourselves according to our own desires, and that therefore even the laws of nature and nature's God will lose their authority if the world is in fact a gigantic accident and the Creator has not stamped His purpose on every individual cell of His creation, including you and me. Uh, that power of authority that comes with creation is what is being objected to in the world. The fact is this universe is an astonishingly beautiful display of the glory of God. This world is an artifact of divine intelligence and power that confronts us everywhere we look. It has his fingerprints all over it, including and especially in you and me made in his image. We are his creatures, and that fact is our help and our hope as God's people. And that is the great unwelcome fact for the world that seeks to hide itself foolishly from God. And falsehood here, at the base, must continue falsehood all the way down. In other words, a failure to understand who we are and where we come from will make it impossible for us to know where we are going and why. But here it is that our Christian faith is radically diverging from the thinking of this world and especially from the ancient world of, of that day where they had all kinds of creation myths and stories even more far out than the ones believed today. Here begins the explanation of what men must do if they're going to understand themselves and their wonder of their life and the tragedies in this world and the longings of their souls and the dissatisfaction they experience without God. You must start here. And this is what is weakening even God's people who have lost or have lost are losing some confidence that God is, in fact, their Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That is to say, once you have knocked over that first domino, that God made the world with power, wisdom, and purpose, it's amazing how many other dominoes must fall too. Does he yet govern the world in such wisdom, purpose, and glory? Is he our, really our help in our time of need? Is it him with whom we have to do? I'd like to think about what this means for us today. Consider the exposition of the passage, this doctrine, its importance, and now the application. The Western world in which we live is increasingly defined by the absence of God. 
the secular world, as people were want to say, that people do not reckon with him, even if they believe he exists. They don't take off their shoes at every bush. They treat him as an idol, a, a small g god whom they can serve or ignore at whim. They do not tremble at his judgment. Many churchgoers live their lives day to day as if God didn't exist, as if God didn't even know what they were thinking or doing and didn't care. Why do you say, O Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord? They don't love God as the person that he is, uh, immensely important to their lives, giving them every breath. They don't look at the world as the theater of God's glory. They're not trusting him to bring such great purposes to pass in their lives, and they are suffering as a result of it. The world, for its part, has a preference for idols that is, the Bible describes it as an act of defiance. It doesn't say that people were merely deluded, but the people are actually turning from such a God that is manifest everywhere in and about them, refusing to acknowledge this great reality because they both fear and despise the implications of that reality. As uh, Daniel told the ruler of Babylon, that wicked Belshazzar, that the God who holds your breath in his hands, you have not glorified, though you knew all this. That Belshazzar, like the others, belong to God as creatures to their creator and are completely in his hand and will be judged according to his standards, not theirs. And that the true fulfillment that they can only hope for is found in willing, heartfelt submission to him. And this is what lies behind the invitation in Isaiah 45. As God says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. And what's so astonishing about that statement is not that it's true, but that God should make it at all. That there is such a, be a being who is nevertheless, despite, despite all that rebellion, willing to receive, to welcome, to grant eternal life and love with him to people who have lived their lives heretofore ignoring, despising, and defying him and even preferring idols, as silly and indefensible as that is. So, brothers and sisters, this is the situation in the world. How do we know God? Well, together with the incarnation of the Son of God, which is the, the great revealer, the creation itself is the supreme self-revelation of God that we see and know him by the things that he has made, and that this is the first of all truths for every human being, for our lives, yours and mine. We are what we are, and the world is what it is, because God is, and he has made it so, you see. All right. So what? Uh, I've told you before about uh, the um, 
wonderful book by Anthony Flew, now passed away uh, for half a century, for 50 years, the world's most not notorious atheist, as I think he rightly describes himself, having debated uh, C.S. Lewis, having edited scholarly journals of atheism and advanced many arguments. He was finally convinced purely, he says, purely from science and reason alone. In other words, from the things that are made, that he could no longer be an atheist. So he became a deist. <laughs> it wasn't a religious view. He just said, if you are honest with what we can see, and especially what science is now telling us on every hand, you have to give up your atheism. But of course, that was a very foolish place for him to stop. Because as soon as you admit that your life is part of that wonder, part of this it's part of this world that naturalism cannot so easily explain. You, you admit much more than you think. For personhood comes from a person. Consciousness comes from consciousness. Morality from the moral and so forth. Uh, in other words, once you admit that human life could not be so easily explained as uh, random chance, you are admitting that what we have as humans... Our, our love of beauty, our thirst for meeting, our demand of, for justice, the moral measurement of our life, our virtually inconceivable mental power, the power of speech and song, our hunger for relationship, for belonging, for eternity, our, our need to worship. In other words, all that supremely marks and defines and characterizes human life as opposed to a dog, you're admitting that all of that must come from God. Are we then to believe that the God who gave us the capacity to behold and love beauty doesn't have anything beautiful to show us, doesn't care for the beautiful, that the one who made us to thirst for meaning has no meaning to give us, that the one who made us to be inescapably moral creatures doesn't care what we do and cares nothing for morality, that the one who made love the greatest power and experience of human life has no love to show us and give us. And I could go on. And this is why we must regain our wonder in creation and to see it in the glory, wisdom, beauty, and power of the Creator Himself. We need to go out at night and look at the glory of the stars, for this creation invests the world and human life with terrible and wonderful meaning. And even people who have never heard a word of the Scripture, if they are honest with what they see... Uh, this is what they must confess. It assures you and me, especially as his children, that God still cares. He has not put love and longing in our hearts and moral judgment in our, into our conscience to mock us, but rather to provide us with an understanding of himself and a confidence that if we are to put our trust in him, that all the great issues of life will also be answered. And this means in good times and in bad, we need to wait upon him who is our help and our shield and trust in his holy name. Well, I, I, I have an objection which I hear from the congregation and I want, to, I want to answer before we conclude. One that's probably been in your mind the whole time since I announced the theme. But, 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 but what about? Okay. 
What about all the other explanations that can be given? Um, a few years ago, an ad appeared on the side of London buses, not your typical ad, selling a product. It was a statement in large letters that read, there probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. The campaign was sponsored by Richard Dawkins, the well-known uh, evolutionary biologist and atheist. And uh, I, I will point out, by the way, that those two ideas have long gone hand in hand. Um, evolutionary biology and atheism. Um, and Dawkins is determined to make sure that uh, people appreciate the implications of his neo-evolutionary teaching, that there is no God, and that there is no heaven, and there's no hell, and no transcendent meanings of human life, and so we should just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. In other words, go enjoy your life. Um, well, as you, as you know very well, uh, the neo-Darwin evolutionary modern synthesis, uh, which I'll just say evolution for short, um, in short, that, that, uh, that all things have developed essentially from random mutation and natural selection is perhaps the most elaborate, most intellectually sophisticated, most sustained effort in the history of human life to suppress the truth about God. Uh, it answers questions about finches wonderfully. Uh, uh, diseases, all kinds of things it makes wonderful predictions about. I, I'm, I'm not after this. I, I'm after the idea that human life and all its elaborateness especially is the result of random mutation and natural selection alone. As you see, and as you know very well, we live in an increasingly unbelieving culture which takes comfort from this supposed fact. And then especially in the case of our elite cultural shapers, including certain local universities, which is why I make this point at some length, many have said that no intelligent person in the modern world can any longer believe what we read in the Bible that man is created in the image of God. And that can sound very daunting to an uninformed Christian and all the more of a Christian university student who hears such a statement from a very well-educated professor. Well, while some still wish to believe that only Appalachian snake-handling rednecks could not believe that the world as we know it came into being and took this form as a result of a long series of physical, chemical, and biological accidents, I would like to point out that the more scientists are doing their work, the less plausible that idea has become. Uh, I've told you in some years past about the developments in physics in particular uh, that helped to convince Flu and, and others um, that uh, uh, Nobel Prize winning physicists have confessed and are on record in journals confessing that it is very, very spooky uh, just how finely tuned the world and all of its laws and constants and everything else in proportions is. That uh, in, in, the word of, in the words of one Nobel, Nobel Prize winning physicist, nobody believes that this just came about by chance. Um, there has to be some other explanation. Um, and uh, science now, at 
especially at the physics level, has had conferences and struggles, peer-reviewed papers in top scientific journals in the universe, wondering how we can understand what they're calling the anthropic principle, that the whole universe seems not only to be designed, but to be designed for man, hence anthropos. Many scientists are still holding, to the, uh, holding on to other explanations, of course. Um, even the most outspoken atheists don't think this is just by chance, but you know, um, many believe that there is a multiverse, not the Spider-Man kind, by the way, kids, uh, a multiverse that is to say uh, a, a perhaps infinite number of universe, infinite in time and infinite in space, an infinite number of universe, and we just happen to be in the one where everything just happens to work out this way. The, the chances of even the cosmological constant being what it is to not destroy everything or make everything hydrogen is 1 times 10 to the negative 120 power. Uh, it's just extremely unlikely that this happens. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for his part, the author of the Modern Cosmos series, um, he now says it's just as likely that the world is a simulation and there was a conference to that effect a couple years ago at the National Museum of History up in New York where he had top scientists and philosophers and others discuss this question. Look, it couldn't just happen. Everything we see gets more and more difficult to hold even to a multiverse. Maybe this is just a simulation, a, great, a huge computer program in which something someone above us is watching with some interest. How that's different from creation, I don't really know, but Neil deGrasse Tyson is a very outspoken atheist, and so uh, this, is, this is what he says are our big options. A virtually infinite number of eternal universes uh, coming and going, or some aliens are looking down on us and smiling. Sim Earth. Um, I've told you about that before. I, I just bring that back. Uh, and, and this is something that, okay, so one of the most outspoken atheists here on, on the campus in Virginia Tech is Nahum Aroth, professor of uh, astronomy, of all things. And uh, yeah, he, he's been on panels representing atheists and so forth. And um, I told one of our students about that who was taking his class. And he went and saw Nahum Aroth in his office hours and said, what do you think about this? He says, this is a good argument. Uh, if there's anything that really challenges my atheism, it's, it's this, right? Um, this, is not, this is not something that uh, people don't know about. My, my, my goal today, though, is not to just remind you of those things that I've told you, but to say that the, there's an interesting thing happening now in biology that's been happening for the last 25 years in physics. Biologists especially, evolutionary biologists, have had tremendous trouble ignoring the evident design and wisdom, genius in, in creation, in, in, in life. Uh, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the DNA molecule, wrote that organisms appear as if they had been designed to, to perform in an astonishingly efficient way. And the human mind, therefore, finds it hard to accept that there need be no designer to achieve this. 
Biologists, he says, must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Though, for, for his part, he, he confesses that um, he, he's compelled to believe in what he calls the panspermia theory, that aliens have seeded this world with, with, with seeds of life. DNA, panspermia, uh, seeds everywhere. He says, you let your mind wander for a second, and you think that somebody has been absolutely brilliant at work designing this. Don't think that. Like, like what, you ask? Well, like, like, like DNA, he says. Like the cell. Or take Darwin's own uh, example in his book here, the complex camera eye that supposedly has evolved, not once, not twice, but many, many times. Cosmos Magazine summarizes it this way. Here's looking at you, squid. Look into the eye of an octopus and you'll find yourself staring back at one not so different from your own. Yet we are about as closely related to an octopus as we are to clams. The octopus evolved its complex camera eye independently of vertebrates like us. Biologists estimate that the eye has evolved independently more than 50 times. This isn't God of the gaps. This is the more that we find, the more that we're... We're stretching this theory like too little butter over so much toast, right? Um, and, 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 so, and so what has just begun, as far as I know, the only major conference on this, uh, or the first major conference anyway that I, to I know of, is an article by science j journalist Stephen Barani quoting a number of the very top, no top names in evolutionary biology talking about the problems. Um, as this is not now just a matter for anxious conversation over the uh, university water coolers or, or even very elite conferences and technical journals and so forth. This is, this is now the Facebook dump of the problems in the relationship, right? <laughs> um, let me give you a couple, a couple of, uh, of quotes from the world's leaders in evolutionary development. Okay. Um, uh, first uh, here, strange as it sounds, scientists still do not know the answers to some of the most basic questions about how life on Earth evolved. Take eyes, for instance. Where do they come from exactly? The usual explanation of how we got these stupendously complex organs rests on the theory of natural selection. This is the basic story of evolution as recounted in countless textbooks and pop science bestsellers. The problem, according to a growing number of scientists, is that it is absurdly crude and misleading. For one thing, it starts midway through the story, taking for granted the existence of light-sensitive cells, lenses, and irises without explaining where they came from in the first place, nor does it adequately explain how such delicate and easily disrupted components merged together to form a single organ. And it isn't just eyes that the traditional theory struggles with. It's the first wing, the first placenta, how they emerge. Explaining these foundational, explaining these is the foundational motivation of evolutionary biology, says Armin Mosick, a biologist at Indiana University. And yet, he says, we still do not have a good answer the classic idea, this is him, this is the, uh, him speaking here, uh, Mosek at Indiana, the classic idea of gradual change, one happy accident at a time, has so far fallen flat. 
We're now in a battle of ideas over the fate of one of the grand theories that has shaped the modern age. But it is also a struggle for professional recognition and status about who gets to decide what is core and what is peripheral to the discipline. The issue at stake, says Arlen Solitsifus, and as an evolutionary theorist at the IBBR, Research Institute in Maryland, is who's going to write the grand narrative of biology. And beneath this lurks the still deeper question whether the idea of a grand theory of biology is a fairy tale that we need to finally give up. Over the past decade, the influential biochemist Ford Doolittle has published essays rubbishing the idea that life sciences even need codification. Quote, we don't need no friggin' new synthesis. We didn't even really need the old synthesis, end quote, he told me. Excuse me for that. Um, the, the article goes on, uh, absurdly crude and misleading. The classic idea that has so far fallen flat a fairy tale that we may finally need to get up, give up. Scientists locked in a desperate struggle for professional recognition and status. Um, this is just a reporter cherry-picking cherry some uh, wacky professors. At that 2016 Royal Society meeting called New Trends in Evolutionary Biology, the first speaker was the distinguished Austrian evolutionary theorist Gerd Müller, in which he said, a rising number of publications argue for a major revision or even a replacement for the standard theory of evolution, indicating that this cannot be dismissed as a minority view, but rather is a widespread feeling among scientists. What is going to be able to answer this? They don't know. That's what they discussed in the, in the conference. Well, maybe we can include this. Maybe we can include that. Maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something there. What about this evidence? What about that evidence? In any case, the first speaker in the Royal Society sets the tone by saying that we need a new theory. That's the majority view. Uh, not that it doesn't pre predict um, finches extremely well, by the way, so just put that aside. The real issue, he says, is that genetic evolution alone has been found insufficient to be an adequate causal explanation of all, all forms of phenotypic complexity. Not only of something vaguely termed macroevolution, he says, actually, the whole micro-macro distinction that people are making explains this, not this. He says, that's hiding some of the biggest problems. I don't know where this is going to go. I understand from a couple people that were there, it was a very tense meeting, and some people greatly pushed back. But there is a change underway, and the space that has been made in physics for saying we have to deal with the anthropic principle in physics is now being made in biology, and evolutionary biology in particular. We have to deal with the fact that this phenotypic complexity in all of its forms cannot be explained by the modern theory. 
clever men will continue to invest intellectual resources to defend the older theory so as to not only advance their careers, but to maintain freedom from any obligation to bow before God. But sooner or later, the passage goes on to remind us, all idols must be trod underfoot and be shown for what they are. In fact, a denial of the creator and a worship of the creature. Verse 17 in our passage that I didn't read reminds us, they shall all be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, you are our gods. If you are a student and struggling in these things, you can look up now the published proceedings of the 2016 Royal Society meeting, New Trends in Evolutionary Biology, a refreshingly honest, scholarly discussion of some of the major problems they're facing. In conclusion, naturalism is what frees man from the guilt of sin in so much large measure because you cannot sin against the blind universe. The universe doesn't know whether you've done right or wrong and doesn't care. Our help is in the name of the, of the Lord. Let not the wise man boast of this wisdom. Let not the strong man of his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, he says. The God who came into this world to live and to die, to give his life for the salvation of creatures like us. A creator ready to be our father, brother, friend, comforter, and advocate, and the God who will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has ordained and has given evidence to all, or testimony to all, by assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here is our hope and here is our help. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none that I desire on earth beside you, sings the psalmist. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Thank you for allowing me a little extra scientific liberty in what I hope is an important issue in some of your lives. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, how good it is to be able to be reminded, despite all that we are told and have been told, some of us from our youth, to be told that all that we see around us is wonderful.